morning, church. So if you guys hadn't guessed, we're going to still be in Matthew 5. So if you want to uh, go ahead and, and turn there or click there or wherever. Um, you know, we've been talking about this series as the upside down kingdom, right? Uh, and we've been focusing on what is known as the Beatitudes. Now, really, the Beatitudes are the intro to what could be called the greatest sermon of all time. You know, and I'm sure, you know, we've been, we've been spending the last six, you know, will be six weeks uh, next week unpacking the introduction of a sermon. I'm sure some pastors would love you to, you know, have folks to spend six weeks unpacking their intro. Uh, hopefully not today. Hopefully not today. But um, maybe there's some public communication wisdom in that. Uh, or maybe it's just because, you know, Jesus, you know, the rules don't really apply to him because, you know, he's Jesus. But um, in a sense, though, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole describes what kingdom life looks like. And the reason we've been saying this upside-down kingdom is because a lot of what Jesus throws out there seems very counterintuitive to what the world would say life looks like, right? He, I mean, the other week we talked about, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. You know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's not very true in our country. You know, we want strength. We want power. We want assertiveness. We want to see it, see people take charge. But God is trying to tell us something in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes that he's talking about his kingdom and how it's different from man's, right? And he, we're looking into what does kingdom life look like? What does it look like for us to be citizens of that kingdom, right? And the Beatitudes serve as a foundation for much of you know, what we see in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. So if you read with me, follow along with me, we're going to read through all, um, all the verses this morning, we're going to go up to verse 9, but we'll read it together, then we'll pray, and, and, and we'll dive in. So verse 1, chapter 5, it says, He's seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then here is where we're at today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. God, uh, God, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase. God, I pray that this morning that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can do. God, we need you. God, I, I need this even now this morning. God, to hear your word, teach me. God, as I seek to teach others, God, please, God, would you move in our hearts? Would you make us a people that you're calling us to be? Transform us, God. God, it's your name we pray. Amen. So the first four weeks, the, the first four weeks of the sermon, we've been looking at each beatitude one at a time, right? There's, in the total, there's eight, some people would say maybe nine, but really eight beatitudes as a whole. And we've gone through each one, each Sunday, one at a time for the first four. And today we're going to cover three, um, and next week we'll wrap up our series. But, you know, we have been for the first four looking mostly at the attitude of the heart. And if you see, it mostly had to do with the attitude of the heart as it relates to God. You know, we talked about recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy. We talked about mourning over our sin, trusting in God in all of our circumstances, you know, as it comes to meekness. And then we talked about relentlessly pursuing God's righteousness. 
But if you, if you look at those, they, they, there's this, mostly this vertical aspect to it, and there's this structure. If we look at all the Beatitudes, you, know, you see the first four have some, a vertical component, this attitude of our heart between us and God. And then the second half shifts to a more, what does life look like horizontally? How do we relate to others, and how do we live in this world? And so that's kind of what our hope is this morning. And this structure we see, we see throughout the scriptures, right? We see even when God gave Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments, right? The first three commandments go, you know, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make a carved image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, mostly vertical. And then the fourth commandment has this horizontal and vertical component about honoring the Sabbath, keeping it holy. You know, we, we, we give God reverence, on Sunday, on the Sabbath, but we also benefit from the rest, right? We rest in God. And then the remaining commandments all are how do we rightly live with other people and in this world? But, and Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said this, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, meaning their second is tied to it. The second flows from it. It's inseparable from it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, Paul wrote his letters this way too. Most of Paul's letters start with a very theological component, and then they end with a very practical application of what does this look like fleshed out in our lives? And see, another way to think about you know, this idea, this question, is how can we say... You know, when it comes to, like, what we believe about God, you know, what, what, how that should impact and transform our lives, ask yourself this question. How can, we, how can we say we've experienced the transformation of the gospel and not live like it? See, what you believe directly impacts how you live. And it's that question that leads me to this big idea for us this morning, and I hope that we'll unpack as we go. And the big idea uh, for us this morning is, Citizens of an upside-down kingdom are transformed from the inside out, and their lives are marked by mercy, devotion, and peace. See, many of us have been burned by others, by other Christians with, that, that focus on legalism and uh, that mindset, and that's not what Jesus endorses, and that's not uh, what we endorse here as a church. And even though we know legalism is wrong, like that you have to earn uh, your salvation, earn uh, right standing before God, we sometimes fall into the trap of moralism. And what I mean by that is that moralism is this idea of that what we, you know, we think that in order to be citizens of God, in order to be accepted, we have to look a certain way. We have to behave a certain way. But the kingdom life that Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount is not a, it's not a requirement for entry, but it is a result from a spiritual transformation that is wrought within us, right? If you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, the moral demands that Jesus puts on his disciples seem like they should make you feel uncomfortable. And some of them are even unattainable. You know, at the end of chapter five, he says, you therefore should be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. All right, well, we can all leave now because that's gonna be pretty hard, right? And it seems kind of, um, you know, he talks about this kingdom righteousness. His point is, that kingdom righteousness can't be attained on your own. And you need to be given a new heart. You need to be transformed, made new. 
Jesus also knows that through his spirit and as we work out our salvation, he, he transforms us continually to look more and more and more like himself. And as we read scripture and it reads us, we trust that God in his grace is able to do in us what we can't do on our own. That he's able to transform us from selfish, rebellious sinners into kingdom citizens that are marked by the gospel. Now, for our time together, I want us to look at three marks of of gospel life in the kingdom. And the first is mercy. In verse 7, the text says, Blessed are the merciful, should they so receive mercy. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is getting at, we have to look other places where he talks about mercy. And, And two other places in Matthew alone, Jesus quotes the prophet Hosea, and he rebukes Pharisees, and he says this. This is the quote to him. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he usually follows it up with, you go, go, go figure out what that means. But the two occasions are, the Pharisees are, you know, they're coming after Jesus because, one, they see him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. The other scenario is he, they catch his disciples plucking grain uh, on the Sabbath, and they, they consider that work. But what Jesus is um, you know, Jesus rebukes them because they let their religion become their God and not the God himself, not God himself. There's this temptation for us as Christians to make religious things, religious activities, or filling our minds up with knowledge and getting puffed up, and that we actually don't live out what God desires for us, what God lays out in his word. And mercy is an essential mark of kingdom life because It's a tangible display of the gospel. See, Jesus is essentially saying, if you know the gospel, you show mercy. If you really understand who I am, you'll show mercy to others. You'll desire to show mercy to others. And there's no better picture than this, uh, than the concept of the parable of the unforgiving servant, the unmerciful servant. Sometimes it's, it's, it's translated. A servant, you know, later in Matthew, there's this, in chapter 18, there's a servant, he's brought before this king, he owes a debt that even conservative estimates today would be in the billions. It was, it was equivalent to 200,000 years wages. And he, you know, he, he's brought before the king and he pleads with him and says, hey, if you just have patience with me, like, I'll, I'll repay it. And the king's like, had mercy on him and just said, hey, I'll forgive your debt. But then this servant goes to a fellow servant, and he says, this servant owes him basically 100 days wage, you know, not even a whole year's wage. It's still a pretty, pretty big amount if you think about it. If someone owed me a third of my salary, I would be, I would, you know, I'd, I'd feel that. But he goes to him, and he chokes him. And then when he, when he pleads to this servant, he says, I, I'll, I'll pay if you just give me patience. He doesn't have any mercy on him and throws him, throws him in prison. And then when he's brought before the king, this wicked servant, this is what the king says to him. He says in verse 33 of chapter 18, he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, we show mercy because we have been shown far more mercy than we will ever show someone else. We have been forgiven far more than we will ever forgive someone else. Jesus calls us blessed because we have been shown mercy. And in the end, in, in the end, we will receive ultimate mercy, right? God's, for, God's mercy covers every sin that we have done, every sin we will do. 
and for the merciful citizen of God's kingdom, on that last day, God will look at us and he won't see all the lists of our religious activities, all the things that we were faithful to go to and all the Bible studies we were a part of, but he will see how God has transformed us, how Jesus has transformed you. We show mercy because we've been shown mercy. And the mercy we do show is a result of what God has done in us. But what does mercy look like? And what happens when, when mercy gets messy? For that, let's turn to the parable. And I actually want to have you guys turn there with me. Go to Luke 10. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's no better picture of what mercy tangibly looks like than the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm going to pick up, start in verse 25. And as I read, I'm going to invite you to jot down a few things um, and underline some things as we read through this text. So if you're in Luke 10, verse 25, he says, Jesus you know, is, is going to have this encounter with a lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, and your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar? And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See, he, the lawyer understood that love for God should result in love for others. But wait, there's more. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replies with this parable. And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. See, isn't it interesting that Jesus chose a priest and a Levite in his illustration? He used a pastor and the worship leader to describe the opposite of mercy. They were religious by all standards, but they had neglected to show any tangible sign of mercy that they had been shown. What follows is where I think we want to start underlining and, and jotting down some things. Looking at verse 33, we start to see through the Samaritan what mercy personified looks like. Verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where, where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Underline verse 33, and there's two things here I want you to jot down. First, mercy sees distress, and mercy responds internally. See, the Samaritan, he saw the needs of the man, and he was moved with compassion for him. He wasn't blind to others' needs. He wasn't only fixated on himself and his, what he was doing with his life. He saw him, and he cared about him. He cared about what God cares about. And he, and he was distressed for him because as if he was the one on the road beaten and left half naked. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I'll, I'll be sure to repay you when I get back. And see, from verses 34 and 35, we see that mercy doesn't just stop at, I'm distressed, I feel for this guy, but mercy responds externally, responds with action. The Samaritan took action. 
He cared for his immediate needs, and then he made plans for them. He, like, he put him on his animal. He bound him up. He, he took him to the end. He provided funds for him. And then you know what? And he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to re-follow up with this guy because I'm going to make sure he's okay. Then Jesus turns to the lawyer and he says this. In verse 36, he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The last thing I want you to jot down as far as what mercy looks like is that mercy acts even when the person in distress is an enemy. See, the Samaritans were at odds with the Jews. There was a lot of racial tension, and they disagreed on religious things as well. See, mercy in Jesus' mind was one that was on the lookout for those that had needs, one that was going to actually feel compassion, and it was motivated out of a true heart of compassion, and not just religious obligation, right? And it took action, and it followed up, and it cared for people, and it even involved difficult people. See, mercy is always going to be messy, and God's mercy extends to all people, and so should ours, right? A pastor he once, uh, that I, I follow, he, he, he was answering the question, why be merciful? And he answered it pretty, uh, pretty uh, poetically. He said this. He said, why be merciful? Because Jesus healed the sick. Because Jesus fed the multitudes. Because Jesus gave legs to the crippled. Because Jesus granted sight to the blind. Because Jesus opened the ears of the deaf. Because Jesus found prostitutes and tax collectors and drew them into the sphere of his love. Because Jesus touched the untouchable and loved the unlovable and forgave the unforgivable and welcomed the undesirable. Because Jesus even now saves the otherwise unsavable. And did he do it because they deserve it? Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works of righteousness we have done, but according to his own mercy. So, but... But Matt, like, should we be merciful all the time? Should we just always be showing mercy? What about justice? Justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin. And I, I guarantee you, you'll be caught at times, is this a moment where I should show mercy or should I exercise justice? I mean, you'll, uh, in your home, like, should, should I discipline my child or should I woo them with mercy and grace in this moment? Should I, should I fire that employee who does shoddy work or should I walk with them and should I mentor them? Should I try to walk with them and get them better at their job? Now, the Bible is not, there's no concrete, here's when and here's when you show mercy and here's when you show justice. But Jesus embodied both perfectly and he's our ultimate example. So my advice to you is the closer you draw to Jesus, the easier it will be to discern when in those moments you you apply mercy and when you exercise justice. But let me say this. As believers, as citizens of the kingdom, even our justice has a flavor of mercy in it. Why? Because we have been shown much mercy. A second mark for today is devotion. See, the verse 8 in, verse, uh, in chapter 5 of Matthew says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the best place, I say devotion, but the best place to try to see what Jesus is talking about here is in Psalm 24. And verses 3 and 4 of that psalm say this. 
Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. See, to be pure in heart is to be given a new heart that leads to a singular devotion to God. Let me unpack this for us. See, a few weeks back, or you know, last week, Rick asked, what are you relentlessly pursuing? What are you giving your life to? See, the pure in heart aren't running after other gods. They're not giving their life to what is false. They're not running after an earthly kingdom. They're not living deceitfully where, you know, they say one thing and they live another. The pure in heart are giving their life to the glory of God and his kingdom. And they're living with character and integrity in all of their dealings. Another way to think about this idea of is think of gold, right? Gold goes through a refinement process and it, to rid out all of its impurities, right? So pure gold has no impurities. And to be pure in heart, in, 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 in that day, the context of the heart for Jews would have been, it's not just like your feelings and emotions, but your complete self was caught up in the heart. So your whole heart, mind, and life was to be free of impurities and solely devoted to God to live a consistent life. So someone, if they saw you, they looked at your life and they said, man, he is the same person at work as he is at home, as he is with believers, as he is with unbelievers. See, as a citizen of the kingdom, being, being a citizen is what informs every area of our life. Kingdom life is a life that's wholly devoted to God. And this is unnerving for us, Right? I mean, we talked about this a little bit in our small group, is that, you know, we look into our hearts and we know that there's, there's ulterior motives. There's things that we chase after. There's things that we, like, put as priority in our heart above God. But see, a pure heart is not something that's from man. A pure heart is from the Lord. See, the writer of Proverbs in chapter 20 says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? And David in Psalm 51 cries out, Lord, he's crying out to God and he's repenting of his sin. He says, create in me a clean heart. Again, we need to, do, we need to have God do a work in us so that our life lines up and matches what we believe. See, the, the verse says, pure in heart will see God. And this is actually kingdom language here. And it revolves around being in the presence of a king. See, think of when Moses, you know, he was going to visit Pharaoh to command and like say, let my people go. And then Pharaoh, before, before the last plague, before the, the angel that comes and the firstborn are slain, Pharaoh makes a point to say, never come into my presence again. Be sure that you do not see my face again. See, to be allowed into a king's presence was to have the approval of the king and to be in the king's good graces. It also involved an aspect of beholding the majesty of royalty. See, can you imagine being uh, blind your whole life? Decades go by. And then all of a sudden, you know, medical advances, they can do surgery and they can give you the ability to see. And then you behold a sunset for the first time after living in darkness. There, the other thing is that there's these glasses now that, I don't know if you guys have seen some of these videos where uh, the people that struggle with colorblindness, there's these glasses that they can now wear that basically helps them so they can see colors. And there's these videos of these people trying on these glasses for the first time, 
and they finally see the color of the world around them, and it's like they're brought to tears and moved just by the, the, the beauty and design of the world around them, brought to life in color. A lot of times I think that's what the image here is of what it looks like to see God, and what we will see in the last days. we'll be so overwhelmed by the beauty and glory of God. The third mark we're going to look at today is peacemaking. And I'll be honest, I would love to like preach on peacemaking for a month. Um, and there's so much we can unpack. Um, and if I, if I could, I'd recommend to you this book. Um, it's called Peacemaker, and it's written by an author called Ken Sandy. And it, it's just a very gospel-centered um, practical guide to peacemaking and conflict resolution. But our text says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let me ask you guys, have you guys ever met someone that you would kind of label as a fire starter? Like any sign of strife around them and it only escalates. If they, if they see a spark of contention, they throw gasoline on it rather than water. See, for believers, citizens of the kingdom, those who have been adopted into God's family, peacemaking is a family trait. It says that peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Now, like we said earlier, peacemaking doesn't make you a child of God, but it is an essential display of what being a part of God's family looks like. Think of it like this. Whether children are adopted or they're biological, they end up like exhibiting qualities, characteristics of their parents. You know, their, their, their parents' character qualities, their quirks, they rub off on them, whether it's their looks and their behavior. You know, when other people look at your kids, they'll say, yep, that's your kid. You know, that's your son, that's your daughter. Um, but, you know, uh, a commentator I read, his name's Chuck Quarles, he, he expressed it like this. He said, Jesus' disciples will be recognized as God's children, not merely because they can claim to be his children, because we can, but because they resemble him in their character and their behavior. Nothing expresses the Father's character more clearly than the ministry of reconciliation or peacemaking. See, in Romans and in 1 Thessalonians, we see that God is referred to the God of peace. God's mission to seek and save the lost comes through the peacemaking work of Jesus Christ. We're called to make peace because Jesus Christ made peace with us. A beautiful passage, 2 Corinthians, says this, chapter 5, it says, you guys should know this one. You've heard it before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins and trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, now we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God's mission to reconcile and save, the, save sinners leads to our mission to reconcile and, and, reach the, and take the message of reconciliation to the lost. See, peacemaking is the hard work of the gospel. 
The reason Christ came and went to such great length to make peace and to reconcile us to God is because of our sin. For us to be peacemakers in our lives means we have to be willing to deal with sin, not just pacify it or mitigate the symptoms. See, in a marriage, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've all had those conversations where you don't actually want to solve the conversation. You just want the conversation to end, right? You know, you don't want to hash it out. You just want the conversation to be over. But usually things get slept under the rug and, you know, and then it waits for the next conversation and things erupt and then you're back where you started, right? But when, in our relationships, in our marriages, in any relationship really, to, to do the work of peacemaking takes hard work and it takes heart work. In Matthew 5, Jesus kind of follows on these Beatitudes, and you kind of see his thought progression of what, what does peacemaking actually look like? What does it look like for us? But what Jesus is saying is that he's teaching. It's a little uncomfortable when we read it. And so what does peacemaking actually look like? So if, you, if you're in Matthew 5 still, and you jump down a little bit, we'll start kind of walking through a little bit of this passage in 23, verse 23. And the first thing I want you to kind of take away is this, is that, peacemaking doesn't wait. Verse 23 says this, so if you're offering your gift on the, at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and put your altar and get, offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Then jump down to verse 38. The second thing that peacemaking does is that it does not retaliate. Verse 38 says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then he keeps going. and He emphasizes this next thing, that peacemaking requires humility. In verse 40, he says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Excuse me. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Lastly, peacemaking requires love and prayer. Check this out. This is the one that gets us all, right? But I say to you, love your enemies. This is verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be, and here's the connection, sons of your Father who is in heaven. I'm talking about Praying for your enemies, loving them, genuinely caring for them. Like not, it's like making it a priority, putting other things aside so that we can go make right things and the disagreements in our life. Taking the low road, even when we desire to be vindicated and we know we're, we're so right in this. That's tough. I don't like that. And when I look in the mirror of scripture, sometimes that's what scripture does. It shows me the ugliness of my heart. And it shows me the work that Christ still wants to do in me. See, peacemaking always has to be more about you and God than it does anything else. Only someone who understands the reconciling work of the cross can do something as crazy as desire to make peace with their enemies, those that hate you. But what if peace isn't always possible? You know, I wish I could tell you, and you guys aren't naive, you know that there are situations in your life where it just seems like peace cannot come, will not come. And, and Scripture even indicates that there will be times when that is the case. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 10 says, I came to bring a sword, 
and not, not, not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And, you know, context is important, but Jesus' point is that, you know, even though it sounds contradictory, he was saying that to, when you're a genuine disciple, a follower of Christ, those that don't follow Christ, that aren't believers, they're genuinely going to have disagreements with you. And there's going to be separation, even in the closest relationships that we have, our family, because of it. And it's not that we should embrace division or stir it up. Gosh, I... But Romans 12, Paul encourages us. He says, if possible, he's talking about disagreements. If possible, so there's a scenario where peacemaking is possible, peacemaking, peacemaking is not going to be possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, so far as it depends on you, you do everything you can in your power to make peace, but there's still going to be times where it doesn't come out. Peace, smoking, peace doesn't happen in the end in our relationships. Why? Because we're living in a broken world. We're sinners. And we're trying to make peace with other sinners. See, there will be times following Christ will lead to vision and even harsh persecution, which we'll, we'll dive into next week. But like mercy, as citizens of an upside-down kingdom, even when there are disagreements... We fight our flesh to respond in love and in prayer and humility and desire God's glory above our right to, you know, to feel vindicated or to, to be right. We seek peace and pursue it, is what 1 Peter writes. But can I, just, can I just take a side for a second? Is that we need this. And I wish we could say it was just our culture that loves to feed on disagreements and division but it's in, our, it's in the church body as well. We thrive on just disagreeing with one another. We want to make our point so clear. We want to stamp our foot and, and, and stand up and say, no, this is the right way to think about things. Division drives so much of what we see on different topics. And I don't think Jesus even cares here if you know without a shadow of a doubt you're 100% right and you can make your point. He's just talking about the desire to make peace. And we should desire to make peace in our homes, at the water cooler, you know, at the farmer's market, wherever you're doing business. But how about in our political posts on social media? Jesus sought to make peace with us and those we disagree with. He pursued it even when he was weeping in the garden and asking the cup to pass from him, when the beatings and the, and the whips were coming and he was being spat on and humiliated and hung on the cross in his nakedness to show, he sought peace and sought to reconcile us to God. With you, he sought to make peace with you, sought to make peace with me. And as we close, I have this big question for you. You know, as we think about the marks of what gospel kingdom life looks like, let me ask you, how has Christ transformed you? What are the marks of transformation in your life? And another way to think about it is if other people saw your life, would they say you have been transformed? Now, remember, kingdom life is not a requirement for entry because we're all broken and sinners and messed up. But the result of transformation is it, it, it results in this kingdom life that Jesus describes. See, to be a part of the upside-down kingdom is to be a part of the inside-out kingdom. See, if we're citizens of the kingdom, we must be transformed. Our lives must, must be marked by mercy, 
that grows as we experience and we understand God's mercy for us. Uh, It has to be characterized by a mark of devotion to God in all areas of our heart and life. Marked by a desire to make peace, just like our king made peace by his blood. And in the end, those that have been transformed by Christ, you know, we will will see God. We will receive ultimate mercy. And we'll be called his sons. We'll be called his daughters. Pray. God, what, what a majestic thing it will be when we see you in all your glory and beauty. God, when we experience your mercy, God, when God, we look at our life and we let, or we're laid open before you and you don't see us and our failures and our sins, but you see the blood of your son, the mercy that he poured out on us. God, and how, how beautiful it would be when you, you look at us and you say, that's my son, that's my daughter. I can call, the, I can call him or her my son or daughter. God, would would you do a work in us? God, would you make us a merciful people? Would you make us a people that desire you, that live righteously before you, that live an undivided, devoted life to you? God, would you make us a people that desire peace, to make peace with one another, make peace with those outside of the church as well, but God, to, to be a light of what peacemaking and exhibit the qualities of our Heavenly Father, God. God, if those that are in here and answering that question, what does it look like to be transformed? And what does my life look like? And actually trying to think, well, God, was there a time when you, you brought me from death to life that they would feel that this is the time where they could respond to you? God, respond to your word. Respond to the gospel, God, that you want to do a work in their hearts. You want to bring them into the kingdom and you want to make them a new creation, a new creature. God, uh, we know that, God, it's not, it's not man that can do these things. We trust that you do them, God. And so we give you this time. We give you our worship. We love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.